0: This morning, there is an interesting little convergence of events going on. We are tracking our way through the book of Hebrews, and we've arrived at really, I think, the richest part in the book, the meatiest part, probably the part that gets least preached, least talked about, least studied, gets the least airtime in churches and Christian circles, but some of the most profound stuff in all of the scriptures are there. It's just that it's not, you know, at a cursory level, it's tough. It's not just love your neighbor and, you know, all the nice, easy-to-understand stuff. This is re- it's quite meaty. But if you put in the effort, if you put in the hard yards, it really does yield some tremendous returns. So Hebrews 9 and 10 is really the, the crux of this book. It's the apex of the letter to the Hebrews. And we've arrived there. These two chapters of the book of Hebrews happen to be uh, really built on this festival, or this observance, of Yom Kippur. That the words Yom Kippur or the translation Day of Atonement, not actually found in the book of Hebrews, you can do a little word search, you won't find them, but all the images, all the language, all the references and the practices that come out in Hebrews 9 and 10, all relate back to this day. For the Jewish mind, this is unmistakable. It's Yom Kippur. This is what's going on. And so what we're going to do this morning is start not in Hebrews, we're going to mainly be in Hebrews 9 and a little bit of Hebrews 10 this morning, but we're not going to start there, we're going to go back to your favourite book in mine, Leviticus, because this is where the good stuff really is. If you don't get this foundation, you're going to be a bit lost by the time you get to Hebrews. So let's go right, right back to Leviticus, third book in the Bible, see if you can pull the pages apart and find your way to Leviticus 16, dust off the cobwebs, And we're just going to sort of walk through what this would have been like, this uh, most important and solemn day in the Jewish calendar. Now, you see in verse 3 of Leviticus, if you've arrived there, and I'm I'm not going to go through all of these texts. We'll have more texts on screen than I'm actually going to be able to cover, so hopefully you'll piece that together. But in verse 3 sort of sets the scene. This is the heading. This is how Aaron, who was the high priest, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. So the first thing we're going to need for a reenactment of the day of Atonement is going to be a high priest. And I believe that we have a high priest this morning. Fantastic. So come on out, high priest, and uh, take your rightful place up here on the uh, stage. This is High Priest Noel, direct descendant of Aaron and uh, in the bloodline of the Levitical priests. Of course, I assume that you've checked your family tree and it's okay, all okay for you to be here. Good man. So, this is Aaron, the high priest. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago, or last week, whenever it was, we talked about the priests as the mediators between God and His people. They broker that relationship. They stand in the gap. So, rather than relating directly to people in the Old Testament, most of the time God is going through a priestly mediator like this man. And he is really at the top of the priestly pile. There's a lot of priests going on, but this is the big daddy right here. So, this is the high priest. Now, most of the activity that is going to happen on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur is going to happen with the priest in this place called the tabernacle. And we, don't, we didn't actually get around to constructing a complete tabernacle this morning. I'm sorry to disappoint you. You're going to have to use your imagination. The tabernacle was really a massive tent. All right? Later on it became, when Israel settled in the land, they built a brick and mortar temple. But while they were a nomadic people, it was a tent. They could literally construct and dismantle it and take it to the next little desert place they were going. So this big tent in the middle of the Israelite camp, it would be set up, and the tabernacle, key thing to know about this, is there are two rooms in the tabernacle. All right, um, Not real creative names, the holy place and the most holy place. Okay, It's not like the Rangitoto room and the Rimu room and all those ones that you have in your workplaces. Okay, This is just holy place, most holy place. The first room the priest is going to go into is called just the holy place. This is a room that priests went into all the time. The the Levitical priests would have gone in there every single day to perform duties, to offer the blood of animals, to do various ceremonial rituals and so on. It got a lot of uh, pedestrian traffic in and out. But the center room, the center point in the tabernacle, the most holy place, nobody got to go in there except once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and only this guy could go in. He is the only guy with rights to go into this room because this is the real pinpoint location of the presence of Yahweh, the presence of God within the tabernacle. It's an incredibly sacred day. And so you read then in Leviticus chapter 16, flick open there a second again just to continue setting the scene in verse 4. this is You wonder why the priest has got this kind of white attire going on. This is how it works in verse 4. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. This is the only reference to underwear that I know of in the Bible. But basically the priest has got to have his sacred underwear on as well as the sacred white outfit. This is not the normal costume that he wore to to carry out his duties. Usually it was much more colorful and much more regal and much more priestly I suppose. But on this day it was very simple. It was plain white to illustrate humility and to illustrate holiness. Now the night before, the priest would have stayed awake all night. He would not have got any sleep. People would have been reading the Scriptures to him. He would have been kept in the most spiritual state possible, reading the Scriptures, meditating on the Scriptures, teaching perhaps the Scriptures, praying to God, preparing himself for really the biggest day of the year for him. This is what his job is all about. He would have woken up early in the morning he would have bathed himself I assume you've done this right we'll take that as a given bathed himself and then he would have turned up at the tabernacle to start work now as far as the actual ceremonies go first thing that's going to happen on the day of atonement is the priest is going to take a selection of animals some of these are for himself and some of these are for the nation of Israel he's going to take a bull and a ram for his own sin Because remember, he's just a human being. He's got to work out his own sin before God, as well as try and deal with the sin of the rest of Israel. So he's going to take a bull and a ram for his own sin, and then two members of the congregation are going to present to the high priest two live goats. These goats, I believe, are on standby this morning, and we have secured them for this purpose of reenacting this uh, solemn event. So these are going to be the two live goats. They're going to come and be presented before the priest to do. Well, I think you know what's coming. <laughs> now, what's happening here is that these goats are going to be given specific roles on the Day of Atonement. And the priest is going to determine what these roles are by the casting of lots. One of these goats is going to be designated for the Lord. All right, that's how the text reads in Leviticus 16. The other goat is going to be designated, literally, for Azazel. And we'll talk about what that means in just a minute. So, what we're going to do, we've got a red lot and a yellow lot here. We're going to have the high priest draw one out. Let's say the red lot is the goat that will be for the Lord. The yellow lot is the goat that will be for Azazel. So the priest will take one of the lots without looking at it, lay it over the head of the goat, and then reveal it to see which goat is which. So would you like to carry out that ceremony? <coughs> You'll place it over the head of, come and place it over the head of this goat here. And let's see who this goat will be. This is the goat for Azazel. Okay, so this goat over here is going to be for the Lord. This is how it's determined. Now, these goats are going to just hang tight for a couple of minutes because first the priest has got to deal with his own stuff. He's got to deal with his own junk before God. All right, so can these goats just hang tight for, for, for just a tick? The priest is going to take, we couldn't quite find a bull this morning, sorry about that, but he would normally, he would normally take a bull at this point, and this is where the, the most sort of uh, breathtaking part of, of the day comes. He will enter the most holy place. Let's say that that is represented by this area of the stage, carrying the blood of a bull that he has just slaughtered, and he will take this into the most holy place. He'll walk through the outer room, out of the holy place, into the most holy place. When he gets in there, the first thing that he would normally do is create a smoke screen in the most holy place because even in the very presence of God, this this (laughs) holy room, there is still the idea of distance. And this is the mystery that is to shroud the presence of God. So the priest would actually burn incense, send up a smoke screen to shield himself from the presence of God. Then he's going to take some of the blood of the bull that he sacrificed for his own sin and he's going to sprinkle it around the Most Holy Place, particularly on what is called the Ark of the Covenant. That is basically a big chest, a big ark box that contains the scrolls of the law, a jar of manna in the wilderness, and various other items that were incredibly sacred. That really is the absolute pinpoint location of the presence of God within this room. So the priest will sprinkle some blood on the various articles of the Most Holy Place. Wait your turn. (laughs) And then he's going to come back out of the tabernacle. The first part is over. All of this so far is just dealing with the priest's stuff. Dealing with his sin before God. But now comes the fun part. He is going to take the goat that is for the Lord. Which I believe is this one over here. This one was for Azazel. So he will take the goat for the Lord... And then animal lovers, you're not going to like this. He will slit the throat of this goat and he'll catch its blood in a bowl. Have you got your knife? We're not actually going to go quite that far. That's right. Nobody tell the SPCA what's happening here. And so poor little goat for the Lord is now dead. It is a carcass and its blood is collected. A good portion of its blood is collected in this bowl. The priest is now going to do exactly what he did with the blood of the goat, with the, uh, with the blood of the bull, with the blood of this goat. He's going to go into the most holy place for the second time, and he is going to sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the covenant. And what he is doing symbolically by sprinkling this blood is he is saying to God, "Lord, will you accept the blood of this animal in exchange for my blood and the blood of all the people?" It's basically a, a transaction between God and his people and offering the blood of a goat in exchange for what really we deserve, which is death, our blood to be spilt, our blood to be poured out. So this is an exchange here. He will sprinkle the blood over the Ark of the Covenant to symbolize that act. This is a little bit longer ritual with the goat. He'll then come out into the outer room, the holy place, and he'll also sprinkle blood in the outer room to cleanse the pollution of sin that's accumulated over the past year. Once he's sprinkled some blood, In the holy place, he's then going to come right outside the whole tabernacle to the main altar outside where the animals were killed, and he's also going to sprinkle some of the goat's blood there as well. All of this is to symbolize the cleansing of the tabernacle from all the pollution that has accumulated through acts of sin and the sacrifices that have been made over the last year. Remember, the Day of Atonement is an annual festival, so everything that's gone on over the past year is now being dealt with in a pretty dramatic way. So he's sprinkled now in three places the blood of this goat, which represents the exchange of this goat's blood for the blood of the people of Israel, a blood sacrifice given for their sin. At this point in the day, all of the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices, are over. But the most intriguing part of the Day of Atonement is still to come, because now the priest's attention turns to this other goat, this goat who is designated for Azazel. And literally, Azazel means the one that carries away. When the Bible was translated into Latin, this became translated in the way that you're probably reading it in most of your Bibles now, the scapegoat. And that's where that word comes from. We talk about scapegoat all the time. That, it, it comes right back to this practice in the book of Leviticus, the goat that departs, or the goat that carries away. This goat will be brought before the priest. Come on, come on. He doesn't like, he knows what's coming here. He will be brought before the priest, and the priest will lay his hands on the head of this goat. And he will confess over the goat all the sins of Israel. Now I've got a list of all of your sins, just I thought we'd read this out, no I didn't do it. But can you imagine what this would have been like? I, we, we can only assume that this wasn't specifically every sin that was committed by every single person, that would be just unworkable. Probably in general categories, the priest would have publicly confessed the sin of Israel. Lord, we have betrayed you, we have transgressed you, we've lied to our neighbour, we've cheated on our brother, we've defrauded people in business, we've not loved our families, as we should have loved them we've not uh, had the kind of temperament that we should have had of love and compassion on our neighbor and on the person who is uh, of lesser means than ourselves lord we've coveted we've stolen we've committed adultery all these categories probably represented in the ten commandments would have come out now all these things that we have done to violate the law we haven't kept sabbath as we should have we haven't been eating all the right Foods, we've eaten unclean foods, Lord. We've eaten far too much food, Lord, at times. You know, all these different things that would have happened, the priest would confess them before the Lord. And again, imagine yourselves. This was quite a public ceremony. Even though the average Israelite wasn't allowed inside the tabernacle, they would have been listening eagerly outside. You know, you can imagine families huddled around with their children, listening as the high priest undertook these actions, wondering what was going to happen, thinking of their own transgressions now. And the symbolism that is going on here is that the sin of Israel is being transferred onto this goat, away from the people and onto this poor little goat for Azazel. And then here's what's interesting. Once the priest has finished his prayer of confession, he doesn't sacrifice the goat. This goat is kept alive and is released. And the goat will be taken and be handed over to another uh, priest, one of the Levitical priests, And that person will then lead the goat out of the tabernacle complex to represent the sin of the nation, the sin of the people being taken away. Think of what this would be like as you're watching this goat laden down with your sin and my sin being led out of that tabernacle complex. It's a pretty solemn moment. It's a moment when we're reflecting On our own hearts, and we're thinking about the things that we've done wrong, being transferred, being handed over to this goat. And this goat wasn't just led outside the camp. As the tradition developed, and once the temple was built, the way this would work is that a series of booths would be set up, leading out from what became the city of Jerusalem, way out along a path into the wilderness. Each booth, half a day's walk apart. So this guy with the goat doesn't get to stop when he's, when he's outside the camp, when he's outside the city. He keeps walking. He keeps going. He walks half a day, gets to the first booth. And there's a crowd of people there. They'll welcome him. They'll give him food and water. He'll rest for a while. That crowd will then walk with him another half day's journey to the second booth. Then they'll return to the first. And on it will go from booth to booth. He is walking for days and days and days out into the wilderness until he gets to the tenth booth. And from there, no one will go with him. He alone will take that goat, and he will lead it to a massive ravine in the wilderness, and he will literally push the goat over the cliff, and it tumbles to its death. You say, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? I mean, why do we need to take the goat so far? Why does it need to die like that? Remember, you don't want this goat walking around in town the next couple of days. You don't want to see that and go, oh, wasn't that the scapegoat? <laughs> that's the goat laden down with all my sin. And your. This is one loaded goat, man. You don't want to see this thing. You want to get it as far away from you as you can. So it is expelled from the community. It is taken days and days walk away and pushed over a cliff. And uh, days after the, the, the ceremony of Yom Kippur, actually ends so then rewinding back to this day this is really then the end of the ceremonies for the high priest he'll bathe himself again he'll offer a couple of burnt sacrifices and then he will return home and have a meal with his family thank you very much high priest let's give him a hand he's done well This is something like how it would have worked. There were many other details involved in this with the blood rituals and exactly what was sprinkled, all this kind of stuff. And you can read that for yourself. I'd encourage you to read Leviticus 16. It sounds scary, but just read through. These were the prescriptions given for how Aaron would actually conduct. And this became an annual observance every single year. The priest goes home, he looks on his calendar. Next year, same deal, same thing. I'm going to come out and I'm going to do it all over again, year after year after year. All right, now let's flick open to Hebrews and see what is going on here. What does the author of Hebrews want to tell us about all of this? Hebrews chapter 10. Let's start there. Now, as you listen to these verses, I want you to think about these ceremonies. Think of their impact. Think of their importance. Think of how serious... And central this was in the life of Israel, this Day of Atonement. It just stood as as a real climactic point in their whole identity as a nation. And here is what the author of Hebrews says at the beginning of chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices, thinking specifically of what we've just witnessed, are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's hard to wrap your mind around what a bombshell this would have been for the readers of Hebrews. the the sacrifices that had happened this incredibly important day the author of Hebrews is saying all the ritual all the sacrifices all the palaver of what went on at Yom Kippur all of that day of atonement stuff never actually atoned for anything it never actually dealt with sin you say well that's crazy How, how on earth could that be this is exactly what it was instituted to do it was called the day of atonement it talks about the cleansing of sins look back in Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 10, they, referring to these sacrifices, are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. You see, the best that you're going to get under the old system is an external cleansing. The best, looking back now, from our vantage point in the New Testament era, the best that you got under the old system in the day of atonement was this kind of outward cleansing external cleansing. It was a ceremonial atonement. It was a ceremonial dealing with sin. It was an outward cleansing. It brought you back in line with the prescriptions of the law, but what it could never ever ever do is really deal with the heart problem, the heart of sin, the, 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 the woven stains of sin into the fabric of our lives. The Day of Atonement was just simply impotent at actually dealing with all of this stuff. So you say, well hang on, this doesn't make sense because why would God institute a day didn't achieve what it was supposed to did god set something up that didn't actually work did god establish a system that actually failed no it actually achieved precisely what it was supposed to it actually achieved precisely the effect that god set it up to achieve look back in hebrews 9 verse 9 this is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. The key word in there is illustration. This whole ceremony, the author of Hebrews is telling us, really functioned as a massive illustration. It didn't actually atone for sin. It merely pointed to the reality that was coming down the track. And the irony of that whole day, looking back on it now, is it represented what it itself could not achieve. It pointed towards what this ceremony could never actually do, the removal of sin, and it stood ultimately as a signpost of the inability of these kinds of sacrifices to really deal with the heart of human sin. It, just like Melchizedek, just like so much of what we've talked about in the book of Hebrews, this whole annual ritual was one big signpost pointing forward beyond itself to something coming down the track that could do what it could never do, remove sin fully from people. And so we get to the next verse in Hebrews 9 verse 11 and the introduction of what Jesus has done now in context of the Day of Atonement. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. Now when you start hearing these images of Christ as the high priest, Jesus entering the tabernacle, for a Jewish reader, immediately what they're going to think is, hang on, this is the Day of Atonement all over again. We are now retelling the story of this Day of Atonement, but now with new characters and a surprisingly new ending. Jesus is now cast in the role of the high priest. We've talked about his priestly role in the past. Jesus is the the perfect mediator between God and people. He achieves what this high priest could never do because he doesn't have to offer that bull for his own sin. A third of the day's ritual is already cut out because he's already perfect and doesn't need to deal with his own junk before God. He is the perfect priestly mediator between God and his people. And as a good high priest reenacting this Day of Atonement, Jesus has entered into a tabernacle, Not the earthly one. Jesus never went into the most holy place in the temple. During his life, he never went in and and did these kinds of rituals. But he did enter the true tabernacle. The true tabernacle that exists in heaven. The one that the earthly tabernacle is actually modeled on. The real throne room, the presence of God in heaven itself. This is what Jesus did after he'd been crucified on the cross. He departed and presented himself before the throne of god almighty in the true heavenly tabernacle that trumps the earthly one and like a good high priest he's not going to enter this tabernacle the presence of the father without bringing with him the appropriate sacrifices and this is the incredible surprise ending that jesus has given the story of the day of atonement because he now takes the role not only of the high priest he turns around and takes the role of the sacrifice as well He takes the role of the animal sacrifice. It is his blood that is spilt. And so Jesus assumes the role of these two goats that we've been talking about. He assumes the role of the goat who was for the Lord. The goat whose blood was spilled and sacrificed and offered before God. This is what Jesus has done on the cross in offering his own blood in exchange for ours. Should have been our blood. Should have been our death. Should have been our judgment. Jesus has offered his instead. He said to the Father, take this. and and free them and redeem them on my behalf. And we're going to talk in a couple of weeks, Randall's going to do a whole sermon on blood. (laughs) It's going to be quite queasy, but it should be fun because the significance of the blood in the Scriptures goes right back again to the Old Testament. Jesus has fulfilled the role of this goat for the Lord, but interestingly, he has also fulfilled the role of the other goat, the scapegoat, this goat for Azazel. Because what the high priest did symbolically with this goat, confessing over it the sins of Israel, transferring those sins onto the head of the goat, God the Father has done in actuality on the cross. The cross stands as the true day of atonement when what was illustrated at Yom Kippur actually came into effect. As Jesus hung on that Roman cross, God the Father transferred your sin and my sin everything that is wrong with us everything that is wrong with the world onto his son jesus christ often that's such an abstract concept for us the sin of the world and we just gloss over it but think friends this is your junk this is my junk this is our baggage This is the rubbish that accumulates in our lives. This is all of our mistakes, our failures, those hidden dark secrets, those regrets that we have in our lives, those things that have haunted us, those personal shortcomings that we sit with and live with even right here now, our insufficiencies, our inadequacies, our selfishness, that selfish streak that just runs through every single human heart, everything that wears us down and weighs us down, everything that we will do in the future that we will stuff up, mess up, screw up all of that all the stains of sin that we've accumulated in our lives that blemish and stain us and we can't we try and wash them out we try and medicate ourselves we try and repress them we try and move on we try and ignore them we try and just get on with life but we cannot get rid of that stuff all those scars in your life and my life that cause us to walk continually with a limp that we wish there was some end to we wish there was some freedom from Every single trace of all that junk, God transferred onto His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Everything that's wrong with you, everything that's wrong with the person sitting next to you and the person sitting next to them, from the entire span of human history, it all went onto Jesus. And He died, and His body was taken away. And at that moment, He became for us Azazel, the scapegoat, the one who carries away, so that for those who name the name of Jesus, who believe and follow him, their sin is completely and totally removed. Think of the image of the goat walking down the aisle, taking sin away. That is the metaphor, one of the richest images in the scriptures, I think, of describing and painting for us what Christ has done, taking that sin away removing it as far as the east is from the west that doesn't mean it never happened that doesn't mean our memories are erased that doesn't mean God's memory is erased but it means all the consequences of that stuff all the implications all the guilt all the shame all the fear that is associated with those acts and thoughts and words that have dishonored God all of that now is completely and utterly removed from us it's gone And we stand no longer in judgment, we stand in freedom. We are no longer objects of God's wrath, we are objects of His grace. We are set free, not free to sin, but free from sin. All because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the scapegoat. He is the one who's carried sin away. And so when we are reminded of our sin, when those memories come back of all the stuff that we've done wrong, as they so often do, we need to remind ourselves, Jesus is the scapegoat. And the goat has left the building. The goat is gone. He's taken it away. It's over. When Satan brings back to your mind all of your inadequacies, all of your shortcomings and failures and fears, we need to remind him in turn, Jesus is my scapegoat. It's on him and he's taken it away. When those painful memories and those regrets surface and bubble back up in our lives we need to speak it to ourselves again and again and again jesus is our scapegoat he has taken my sin away we need to free ourselves from living in guilt and shame because that is not the way jesus has asked us or freed us to live he has freed us to live in in freedom in release from sin no longer bearing the shame and consequences of all that and i think churches through history have done such a great job of preaching guilt and obligation and laying it on us and try harder do more do more do more sin less sin less sin less and you know we're tired of it aren't we i'm tired of it we need a new message there's a time for that there's a time to talk about how much we need to do and how hard we need to press forward and all of that but honestly i think we've heard that message again and again and again we're trying to do the best we can We're trying to be good people, but frankly, most of us are falling over every single day and feeling pretty messed up and stupid about ourselves. And what we need to hear, friends, I think, with fresh ears, is the message that Jesus is our scapegoat, that he has taken it away. And we're we're afraid to do that because we think it's a license to sin, but it's a license, I think, to be motivated to serve the living God. This is why the author of Hebrews says this in verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. That's the natural implication of someone who has experienced Jesus as their scapegoat. They are motivated to serve the living God, to lay their lives down for Him. This is when John Wesley recorded his conversion in that great hymn, And Can It Be. He describes it this way. He says, My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the natural movement of a person that's genuinely repentant. Our chains have fallen off. Sin has been removed. Our heart is free. Now the response of our heart is to rise and follow God because he has done for us what the day of atonement in the Old Testament never could, not just an external cleansing, but now the purging of sin from our hearts, the cleansing of our conscience. Jesus is our scapegoat, friends, and that should be a liberating and redeeming truth for us. And I want to talk just as we close for one minute to those, and there may be some here this morning, you may be listening to this On CD, someone from Shore has ordered it for you. You might be listening to this on television throughout the country. For those of you that do not yet know Jesus as your Lord, who have not yet experienced your own Day of Atonement, and you may be in the same place as those in the Old Testament, of trying endlessly to deal with stuff in your life, deal with junk, deal with rubbish. You may not even think that it needs to be dealt with. You may be living perfectly happy. But perhaps this message of Jesus, the scapegoat, has stirred something in you this morning. And I want to encourage you, do not leave here today, do not go another moment, take another step without getting your heart right with the God who gave his life for you. And simply the response that Jesus asks from us in response to all that he's done for us is what the Bible calls repent, which is to simply turn from the way that I was going to the way that God wants me to go. Not just to swap one set of rules for another, but to turn toward Jesus and enter a relationship with Him. Ask Him to forgive you for those things in your life that you have done that have messed uh, up and dishonored God, and He will do it because of Jesus and what He's done on the cross. Ask Him to give you that brand new start to enter a relationship with you to cleanse your conscience from everything in your past and wipe that slate completely clean. That is a decision that you can make today, and I would encourage you. You can do it simply by talking to God, coming honestly before Him, and handing your life over to Him and saying, Father, my life is no longer yours. Mine, it's yours. I'm in your hands. I want to go your way. I want to do your will. And I thank you that Jesus is my scapegoat. He's taken my sin away. I'm going to be available at the end of the service if you'd love to come and talk and pray more about that and share. And I can share some steps that you can take to start that new life as a follower of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have sent Jesus as our scapegoat. We thank you for this illustration so far back in the Old Testament of what Christ would be and what he would do and what he would achieve. We thank you for the richness of this metaphor, of Jesus as our scapegoat, the goat that has taken sin away. And we thank you for the profound truth that it offers, the removal of sin in our life. Lord, I pray you'd help us to experience that, not only in our minds, but in our hearts. Help us to live out of that reality. Help us to internalize it deeply, to remind ourselves of it daily. And I pray, Lord, for all those here who don't yet know you, Lord, that you'd be knocking on the door of their heart, that you would be revealing this truth to them afresh, that Jesus truly has come, has taken sin away, and what happened on the cross can be made a reality in their lives today. I pray you would lead them to turn their lives over to you and come with open arms into your kingdom, knowing that you are the loving Father who embraces and welcomes them home. We thank you and give you praise for all that you've done through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.